Friday lunchtime lectures at the Open Data Institute. Thank you very much and good afternoon everyone. I should start with an apology. Um, for I understand it's a long-standing tradition as of two weeks ago <laughs> that ODI Friday lunchtime lecturers have to get in reference to Taylor Swift and to Beyonce at some point <laughs> during the lecture. They're really, really bad. <laughs> but bizarrely, bizarrely, I actually have some form on this. You may have heard some rumours that when I did an older version of this presentation launching our Whitehall Monitor report in November, it was the week that Mylene Class was talking about mansion tax mm. Um, so I managed to get in a terrible, terrible pop star-related pun. You'll be glad that as of today, it's not just hearsay. <laughs> anyway, moving on. <laughs> I told you it was bad. That, that's the level you can expect. Um, just to introduce myself and um, the Institute for Government. Um, I'm a senior researcher at the Institute. Um, we were established in 2008, though we only celebrated our official fifth birthday last year. I promise most of the data is much more robust than that that you're going to see over the next 20 minutes. Um, we're a non-partisan independent charity and think tank, and we try to make government more effective. And we do that through research reports, through learning and development, and we also do it through the project that I lead, which is called Whitehall Monitor. Now, that's our data-driven analysis of the size, shape and performance of government. So we take lots of open data published by the UK government and other sources and try to make sense of it through blog posts, uh, sort of graphics in tweets, and through the annual report that we published this November. 120-plus graphics, over 150 pages. You can find all of that on our website. And within that report, and indeed across all of our work, we tend to look at three things about government. First, the resources that are available to Whitehall, or the inputs, things like people and money. We then look at the things that Whitehall does with those, the outputs, so passing legislation, various pieces of business as usual as well. And then we try also to look at the real-world impact or outcomes of those actions. Has it actually made a difference on the ground and what do people think about what government is doing? So the annual report focused on four narratives. Uh, what government looks like in 2014? Departments differ, essentially. Most people probably think that all government departments have secretaries of state that answer on behalf of their departments to the media and to parliament. They have civil servants and they have certain budgets. There's a lot of difference within those things. We also looked at how government has changed since 2010, smaller budgets and fewer staff, but also quite a few big reforms, and I'll touch on some of those as we go through this presentation. How transparent government is, which I'm sure will be of interest to many of you in this room. Um, open data is obviously a big success story for this government, but there are still things that can be done. And possibly the most relevant to today's lecture, which is what are the pressure points post-2015? Whatever government comes to power in May or June or July or whenever it should happen, what are the things that they might need to think about? And we can actually tell quite a lot of that from what we've seen over the last five years or so. So I'm going to kick off with the inputs and the things that sort of government departments have to deal with. And the first thing we need to think about is who's actually managing those resources. Ministers, secretaries of state. Now it's quite important, and it's, it's a perennial pressure on government, that they keep getting reshuffled, and that can have consequences. Junior ministers in particular can sort of see policies through to the end. They drive things through parliament and on the ground. And obviously secretaries of state also get to know their briefs really well as well. You don't necessarily want them shuffling in and out all the time. This shows us 
sort of reshuffles over the last few years. Now, those pink bars at the top, and you can see it's more than 50% over in the Department of Business, Innovation and Skills, the Department for Education and the Foreign Office, those pink bars are ministers who came into their current post as of last summer. Those ministers will not serve a full year in their current job. And as I mentioned, some, some departments are much more stable, giving people more time to, to get used to things. Others, there's been a lot more turnover. And again, that might have consequences for running a department. Most governments can have to deal with that in some way. There's been a lot of turnover on the ministerial side. There's also been quite a lot on the official side, so permanent secretaries. Only one of them, Sir Nicholas McPherson of the Treasury, was actually in that position before 2010. Now, again, that throws up some interesting questions for the next government and possibly negotiations around the next government. Permanent secretaries, who are the lead civil servants in every department, will have been having conversations with opposition parties about what they will want to do when they come in. Again, we've only got one who's had experience of doing that before. And, of course, all of that will be writ large if they're having to negotiate more complex coalition deals and minority government after the next election. So there's been quite a lot of turnover there over the last few years. There is somewhere where we've seen a lot more stability. This is a chart showing you machinery of government changes since 1975. And you can see that some departments, such as the Ministry of Defence at the top, and the territorial offices, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland down at the bottom, have actually remained relatively stable. But across the rest of government, there's been lots of chopping and changing. And if you look here at the sort of business area, you've got Department of Trade and Industry split into Department for <coughs> Innovation, Universities and Skills, Enterprise and Regulatory Reform, and then came back together as biz. So it's not a case that when you break things up, they're never, ever, ever, ever going to get back together. That was the terrible Taylor Swift reference. I do apologise. I might need to work on that one for next time. Um, but there's always a temptation for new governments coming in to, to do something machinery of government and um, to make political points or to solve uh, political problems. We've actually republished something this week which says a lot of the cost savings you think you're going to make are actually illusory. It can cost a lot of money to do it. It can cause quite a lot of disruption. But it's something that might face any government after the next general election. So, we've looked at sort of who's managing all of these resources. Let's move to money. Now, departmental budgets vary in size. I'm not going to ask you to guess what all of these different circles are, but does anybody have any idea what the <coughs> biggest department might be in terms of public spending? Health? Any other guesses? DWP, Department for Work and Pensions? That's right. Over $170 billion. Again, health is the second largest. Um, but you can see that there's quite a variety in the, the sorts of money that you would be managing as a government minister coming in. A lot of those budgets, of course, have shrunk um, since 2010. And that's a pressure that will continue after the next election. So this is using uh, figures from the Office for Budget Responsibility to give an idea of the spending pressures that might happen over the next parliament. Health, education, international aid are protected budgets. That means that there will be quite a lot of pressure on other departments to reduce spending. And I suppose when we come to 2020, and various people will look back and say, well, actually, I wish that spending in this department had stayed the same. Well, if you liked it, then you should have put a ring fence on it. <laughs> <laughs> You'd be glad to know that's where the tortured pop music fans end. <laughs> or possibly not. <laughs> 
So another thing to think about, if we are looking at increased pressure on public spending and any continuation of sort of austerity type agenda, there are other things that departments can look at in order to sort of get through it. And one of those is to sweat their assets more more effectively. You can see that the Treasury, Ministry of Defence and Department for Transport actually own, sort of have a lot of assets, (coughs) which are the banks, defence material and the transport infrastructure. They also have a lot of liabilities in some cases. These very these two really big pink bars down at the bottom are health, that's clinical negligence provision, and that's DEC, um, which is nuclear decommissioning. So again, this doesn't tend to get that much attention, but it's something that politicians should probably focus a little bit more on if they're trying to make savings after the next election. Now, this doesn't really fit into the flow of my presentation, but I just wanted an excuse to show you some maps. Uh, We used a document um, from the Treasury to try to give some idea of the different levels of devolution within departments. So again, if you're taking over DFE, the Department for Education, you're basically running an England-only department. And there's a grand spectrum of different degrees of working with Northern Ireland, Scotland and Wales, right down to the Ministry of Defence, the Foreign Commonwealth Office, DFID, and the Treasury and the other Chancellor's departments, which are actually much more UK-focused. Again, there's a lot in the air at the moment about decentralisation and devolution. This map could change dramatically over the next five years, not just between the, the nations of the UK, but within England. Now, I, I've talked a bit about if we're trying to, if, if, if politicians are trying to understand more about finances and sort of change the way they spend, we need, we need the information. So we tried to look at the various spending changes between various spending plans over the last five years, because obviously things change, and see if we could see any explanations for that. And as you can see from our sort of colour-coded table here, some departments, such as DEC, which is Energy and Climate Change, DCMS, Culture, Media and Sport, and Ministry of Justice, were actually quite good, quite open, quite transparent. It was quite easy to find why things had shifted. Other departments, including rather amusingly the Treasury are actually much worse at doing that. Again, this is one area where some more financial transparency would be really welcome after the next election. We've looked at money. Now let's look at staff. Staff numbers are down by over 70,000 since the spending review in 2010. So the civil service is just over 400,000. It was around 480,000 in 2010. And you can see that dotted line there. That's where the government thought that the cuts might take them. It hasn't quite gone like that. But again, there's also discussion about some further staff cuts after the next election. If there are to be more staff cuts, then Whitehall will have to fundamentally change some of the ways it works. Digital obviously be one way that will be familiar to many of you in this room. But it can't just be salami slicing anymore. You have to address how things actually fit together at the centre of government. Just to give you some idea of where that fits into historical context, civil service is at its smallest since World War II. You can see that huge spike after 1939 as various parts of civil society were brought into the state and nationalised industries. And ever since then, we've sort of seen a, a gradual decline in the number of people working as civil servants. That hasn't affected every department in the same way. DEC, DFID, which is International Development in the Cabinet Office, I've actually seen a slight increase in the staff that are under direct management of ministers. DCLG, Communities and Local Government, and DCMS, Culture, Media and Sports, have actually taken much larger reductions. But in terms of the overall picture, 
They are very small departments. They don't actually account for that much of the total. The ones that do account for a lot of the total are Work and Pensions, Ministry of Justice, Revenue and Customs, and Ministry of Defence, sort of quite big delivery departments, a lot of them dealing directly with the public. And as you'd expect, overall, they actually account for the bulk of the cuts. Now, obviously, that can put quite a lot of pressure on civil servants in departments. It's something which needs to be very carefully managed. And there'll be further pressures on that with further reductions if they happen after 2015. But as this incredibly interesting line chart shows you, civil service morale has actually held up reasonably well across the board. It's overall gone down by a couple of points, then come back up. And in fact, in the last year, we saw another percentage increase. So this asks civil servants what they think of their department, essentially. That's not true across the board. Various departments have very different results. Now, one example of that is the Department for Education. And we've got the Employee Engagement Index, which I just mentioned sort of over there. There are various other themes within this workplace survey that you can see. And if you look at what happens in 2010, then in 2011, 2012, and 2013, it's actually seen a sort of gradual decline across a lot of those themes. In fact, it was the only department which saw falls in the overall engagement index in every year between 2009 and 2013. But DfE recovered over the last year. It's now much closer to those pre-2010 levels before there were big changes going through the department. And in fact, DfE is now above the civil service average for the first time in a number of years. You can also see that there are certain themes which stand out that people are less happy about. They're very happy with organisational objectives and purpose and what they think about the people working around them sort of over 70% are positive. If you look at paying benefits, it's under 30%. Now, that's what the civil service as a whole thinks. This is what the senior civil service thinks. They're a lot happier across the board. They think things are being better managed, although they're also quite unhappy with paying benefits as well. And again, bearing in mind the pressure on the public sector in terms of pay they'll have to think of other ways of managing some of these staff morale issues over the next parliament. So that finishes sort of looking at the inputs and the resources going into Whitehall. What about the outputs, the things that Whitehall departments actually do? First thing to say is that departments actually manage their spend and their resources in very different ways. If you look at the top left, you've got HMRC, DWP. They directly manage a lot of their resources, so that's actually employing people in job centres, going face-to-face with the public. You've then got a clutch of departments, such as MOD, DEFRA, um, particularly DCMS, very good examples of those that run a lot of their resources through arm's length bodies. So in DCMS's case, a lot of the money goes straight out to the BBC, the Arts Council, Sport England, National Museums and Galleries. There are some big system and grant funders, so DCLG is a very good example, giving money out to local councils. And then you've got a few, uh, notably MOJ up there, which are engaging more in markets and contracting. Now, why does any of this matter? Well, you will need different skills within your departments to do these various different things. It means that you have very different relationships with the bodies and people around you. And to take one example, Ministry of Justice, that model's actually changed quite a lot since 2010. It's one thing to run a probation service yourself, It's quite another to have the commercial skills to make sure that somebody else is doing it properly on your behalf. And in fact, to take another example of that, this is what's happened to the Department of Health over the last few years, um, but certainly in theory. It's gone from big system and grant funding 
giving lots of money to hospitals, to actually running the health service essentially through arm's length bodies such as Public Health England and NHS England. Again, that might feel like an administrative change which doesn't really matter that much, but it's difficult to imagine the Department of Health turning around to its minister and saying, talking about funding and how it needs more of it. That's exactly what those arm's length bodies now running DH did last October. So it does actually have quite an impact. And again, looking after the next general election, there may be a few more examples of that, and you need to make sure that if you are going to change what your department does, you've got the capability within your department to deal with it. <coughs> so the bonfire of the quangos. I mentioned machinery of government changes earlier and the sort of big departmental changes. There's also a lot of pressure, um, usually, to engage in an arms race to get rid of more arms-length bodies than your opponents would. Arms and body reform should be about a lot more than that. It's about where the functions should sit. I mean, how, what do you need and where do you need it to do your job effectively as a government department? Nonetheless, we can see that the number of arms and bodies has declined significantly since 1979, when there were over 2,000 to around 450 in 2014. Again, this might be an area where we see a lot more change after the next election. So I mentioned, I mean, that's one model sort of running through arms and bodies. Another one that I mentioned, um, particularly in the MOJ context, was running through, through public service markets or government contracting. We did a big piece of work last year with Spend Network, one of the open data startups that were incubated uh, by the Open Data Institute. And they analysed 40 million transactions across nearly 7,000 different documents for us to try to build up a picture of who the biggest suppliers of services were to government. And this is a slightly different chart, actually. It shows you, for each of the big suppliers, how reliant they are on different departments for their sort of trade with government. So, for instance, Babcock, which is a big defence uh, supplier, most of its business is with the MOD, whereas Capita is much more evenly spread across different departments. The reason I've got this up here, though, is to talk a bit about transparency. Um, there have been a lot of good initiatives in this field, but we found there were still a lot of problems with the data if we really want to understand where all of the money is going here. In terms of the contracts themselves, it's quite difficult sometimes to work out who the companies actually are that are benefiting from it, particularly where there are private finance initiative or joint venture elements. And that's just the sort of contracting. If you're actually talking about the performance, it's even more difficult to work out who's doing well, who's not doing so well. That's really important if government and suppliers are to learn about how to do this better. So there's a lot of business as usual as well that government departments will do, and this will continue whoever wins after 2015. Uh, to give you one example, these are the number of parliamentary questions that each department receives. Uh, these are written questions rather than the theatre of Prime Minister's questions that you often see on the TV. And you can see that some departments like health and work and pensions get considerably more than others. There are also quite big differences in how well departments respond to those requests. So this brings in parliamentary questions, ministerial correspondence, which is letters from MPs to ministers, and freedom of information. You can see that Department of Health actually does very well, even though it's got quite a high volume. Home office down at the bottom, less so. So again, seeing some improvement across the board after 2015, whoever wins would be very welcome, I'm sure. Another perennial pressure on government and major projects, and this is actually something which, again, we've seen some interesting initiatives <coughs> over the last few years. So we've now got the Major Projects Authority in the Cabinet Office, which gives RAG ratings, red, amber, green, on 
500 billion pounds worth of major projects across government. I think there was probably a lot of nervousness about this. If you suddenly rank a project as red, that's likely to attract negative headlines. But actually, we think it brings a welcome degree of realism. Even though, if you look at the balance of ratings across major projects in 2013 versus 2014, there are actually a few more in the amber-red category, which is that they need quite a bit of work to get back on target. That's probably mainly reflecting new projects which have come on stream they're at the start of their project life. It's going to take longer for them to sort of get going. If you look at those projects which are in both years' reports, actually the number getting better is, is higher. So there is improvement happening there. Transparency may be helping to drive that. But again, whoever's in government after 2015, major projects are not going away. Hopefully, the Major Projects Authority and the, rate, the ratings that it puts out won't be going away either. So that's sort of dealing with what departments actually do. What difference does that make on the ground? That's actually a very difficult thing to measure, and it's also a very difficult thing to find on government websites to a certain extent. <coughs> Each department has a set of impact indicators. So departments have business plans where they set out a number of actions that they'll take, but also indicators where they'll see the effect of those policies and reforms on the ground. And we went to the Number 10 Transparency website uh, to try to find the scores for these indicators. Could we find the current score? Could we find it in an open format? Were they presented in a way that would make sense to the members of the public that they're supposed to serve? And are they also in the annual report for use by Parliament? We're about to update this, hopefully, in the next few weeks. Some of the order will change, but um, communities and local government, transport, work and pensions, extremely good on this. Actually very open, very easy to use. Again, we've got the Treasury down at the bottom that seem, doesn't seem to want everybody to know exactly how it's doing against its targets. So that's one way of measuring impact. And it's an open question as to what any new government will do in terms of measuring this. There's also a large expectation gap from the public. We did some polling last August, and one of the questions we set was, which three things do you think UK politicians should prioritise? And people said things like fulfilling the promises politicians make before they get elected, getting best value for taxpayers, taking long-term decisions, acting professionally. Those are the things that people think politicians should prioritise. This is what they think politicians do prioritise. There's almost a complete reversal. The things that the public didn't want politicians to prioritise, getting re-elected, making announcements in the media, scoring party political points, are what they think they do prioritise. So there's actually quite a big disconnect there, and again, that could be quite a big pressure after 2015. It's not all doom and gloom, though. Um, this is looking at a sort of international ranking of where we sit on that. We're not as happy as the Swiss. We're not as unhappy as the Portuguese. So it probably could be worse. And to tie some of that together, we can look at the data that's come out of government over the last five years to give us some idea of some of the big um, challenges over the next five years. So departments need more stable leadership, going back to the ministers and permanent secretaries turning over. We need greater insight on spending. Civil service will need to change how it works if we're to see any more workforce reductions. <coughs> Whitehall needs to make sure that it's got the skills to conduct any major reforms. And obviously there's that public perception point, um, which, is going, which is not just a pressure in the UK, but across the world. Now that's sort of looking at, that's less looking at the open data side as open data, more actually using it, but if we're thinking about the open data side, what might we see after the next election, what would we like to see 
over the next election. This is a timeline, um, shamelessly cribbed from Ellen at the ADI, um, which gives a good sense that actually this has been quite a cross-party and cross-government success story. A lot of the things that started under Labour have been continued under um, the, cons the Conservatives and Liberal Democrats, and particularly Francis Maud at the Cabinet Office. So there's, I think there's some hope that that might continue after the next election. But there are things that could be improved. I'm going to sort of very quickly talk through three different ways of looking at this. One is sort of data as data. One is data as information, sort of making sense of it. And one is sort of data as evidence, if you like, actually using it for something. On the data as data point, um, we use quite a lot of government data. We're regular users, if not addicts. And there are definitely things that could be improved um, in particular areas and across the board. One of the, I could go through a lot of these, I'm sure a lot of you will, have, will be familiar with them, but to take one example, you've got departments being referred to differently across different data sets. That might be a comma out of place, it might be arms length bodies being included in some data sets but not in others. Either of those problems makes it much more difficult to compare across data sets and across government than we'd like it to and not really unleashing the full potential of some of this open data. We're looking at data as information, so actually making it informative, doing something with it. Um, this is that impact indicators chart again. Um, something like that, we think government should be better at explaining to the public what these things mean. But it's also about the wider ecosystem. You've got people like us at the Institute for Government, a lot of you around the Open Data Institute, so lots of data journalists as well who can now take a lot of this information, a lot of this data and turn it into something meaningful that can be understood and used by the public. So that's actually quite an exciting uh, possibility, I think, over the next few years. The sort of army of armchair auditors hasn't quite enlisted in the way that was perhaps hoped, but you've got organisations which have expertise and knowledge in particular areas who can do a lot of that job. Moving on to the final point, sort of using data, using data for something, and um, sort of evidence was one of the words I, I gave. This is the state stat process in Maryland. I'll talk you through this. We, a few of us went to visit Maryland in December because uh, the then governor, Martin O'Malley, has sort of made a big thing of data-driven leadership. He did it as mayor of Baltimore, where he applied statistical techniques to the police, then applied it to the whole city government, so the various different agencies, and then he took it up to state level as governor of Maryland. And it meant that lots of agencies would have performance targets. They would work with the state stat team before a regular stock take meeting to sort of get their data in order, put it in a presentable way. At the meeting, they would then run through it with the mayor or with the governor or with his representatives and with others from across the government who it was also relevant to. So it's actually quite a good way of fostering cross-government working. And they'd see if things were heading in the right direction, if they were, great. If they weren't, it wasn't actually necessarily a case of blame. It was, okay, what can we do to solve these problems? And the hope that the graph would turn in the right direction after the next meeting. And then after the meeting, there'd sort of be relentless follow-up to make sure that everything was being acted upon and improvements were really happening. This is just one example. It's sort of spread across the United States in quite a big way, sort of running city, county, even state governments using data as a form not just of understanding what's going on but actually managing your government so again could we see something similar in the UK after 2015 whoever wins the general election is going to face an awful lot of challenges that's only a very quick summary of uh, some of them 
Um, obviously, they won't have to deal with terrible puns about pop music either, so that might be slightly easier. But um, thank you very much. You've been listening to a Friday lunchtime lecture brought to you by the Open Data Institute.